I want to welcome you to Providence Road. My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here at the church and Nicole's husband. We are glad that you're here with us today on this Memorial Day weekend. Um, a lot of our uh, usual folks are out because of the holiday, but we're glad to see you. And it's been a beautiful morning, so I feel like it's a good, good start to um, our Sunday morning. We're going to continue on in our book of Ecclesiastes, walking through it. Uh, let me pray uh, for us um, today. Father, I want to begin by acknowledging that uh, this is Memorial Day weekend, and this is a weekend that um, we kind of stop and give extra special attention to those who have, who have fought and passed in um, the, the line of duty, and we just want to stop and acknowledge that and, and be thankful for those who've given their life for our country. And I pray that we would remember them this weekend, and especially those that are connected to them that are still here, that uh, might be grieving, that might have... Um, difficulty still thinking about um, the memory and the legacy that they've left. I pray that you would be with them, that you would comfort them, um, and that you would be present with them, and they would feel your nearness um, on this um, Memorial Day weekend. And I pray for our time today. I pray for this text we're about to go through, and I pray that you would change us as a result of looking at your word, that this topic that we're going to look at today is so um, really relevant for all of us. I think we all can struggle with this to some degree or another, so help us. Help us. Um, we, we trust that your spirit is, is, is present with us today and that you want to change us through your word. So do that um, now, Lord. And we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I've shared this story um, multiple times in the history of Providence Row, but I had a, a friend, um, and he was a good friend, that I worked with in um, the church that I was at in Austin, Texas, called the Austin Stone. His name was Ronnie Smith. And Ronnie um, left, um, moved from Austin to Libya, um, the country of Libya, in 2011 to be a missionary there. And his family went with him, and um, they were part of the team. But in 2013, December 5th, 2013, so almost 10 years now, um, Ronnie was um, gunned down while jogging early one morning, killed by, and all they know is it was a black Jeep with four um, people with um, guns, and they shot him dead on the spot on the side of the road while he was jogging. And it, it's been believed to, there was no, nobody that ever made claim, or um, they didn't find these, these uh, guys, but um, it was probably a, a branch of Al-Qaeda that was active in Libya at the time that was targeting foreigners. And he, whoa, sorry about that, he lost his life, um, and he left behind a, um, a wife, Anita, and a little 18-month-old son, Hosea. This was almost 10 years ago. And um, this story, as I think about it, and, and it's pertinent to this topic, which is why I bring it back up again, um, because the question that we have when we hear something like this, and we, when we face things on our own, is what do we do when we face injustice? When there are injustices done, when things like this happen, and these, these four Guys, more likely, will, will never face justice for this particular act that they did, killing Ronnie Smith. They will never face justice. They, they, will, they will never be brought to justice. They will never be found um, here on earth. What do we do? And these types of things causes us to say life isn't fair. It's not fair. And we say that. We think that to ourselves. Pain, suffering. Um, you look, look on the news or check your feed. Right, like plane crashes, school shootings, things that make no sense. 
Maybe things closer to home for you. Maybe you get looked over, passed over for a promotion that you think you deserve. Someone else gets it, and you are upset about that. Your kids face injustice, or stuff isn't fair with them in their life, and you feel for them because they're, they're innocent, and they're little, and you want to care for them and protect them. Maybe you get stabbed in the back relationally. Maybe other people that you're close to make more money than you and have a different kind of life that you want, and you're envious of them. So all of those things cause us to say life isn't fair. Some people go to the hospital and leave healed. Some people go to the hospital and don't come home. See, Solomon in this book, Ecclesiastes, is reflecting on life, and he's determined that life is meaningless. That's meaningless. That's, why, that's how he starts the book. And then he proceeds to, he's been walking through different things that human beings pursue to find meaning. He says, he's made the statements like, life is vanity. It's, 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 it's like a mist. It's a vapor. It's here today. It's gone tomorrow. You can't hold on to it. You can't grab it. We can't control it. It's hard to understand sometimes. These big questions we don't have all the answers to. And because a lot of us are control freaks, it drives us crazy that we can't figure this out. And Solomon, who um, at the time, the scriptures say, was the wisest man who ever lived and more than likely was one of the wealthiest men who ever lived, is on this kind of uh, crusade, this 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 um this exercise, this experiment to figure out, is there something that I can chase and find in life that will give me meaning? And he's gone from wisdom, to he's looked at wisdom, he's looked at pleasure, he's looked with, uh, dealt with the dealing with death and how do we see death. Last week we looked at how do we approach time and this rhythm and these cycles, things seem to be the same over and over and how do we deal with that. And now he gets to another problem today, this idea of injustice. Injustice. Look at verse 16. Moreover, or also, he's saying, kind of coming out of this conversation that we looked at last week on time, this, this teaching on time, he says, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. And what he's saying here, he's saying, he's kind of gathering himself after last week, and he says, okay, I'm going to look for justice. Just in general, I'm going to look for places that, are, that, that, that I can see justice happening. And he begins by looking at it in a general way, and he, he finds wickedness, he says. When I was looking for justice, I found wickedness. And then he seems to say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to specifically look in places of righteousness, then, places where things seem to be going well, where kind of good people are involved. And he looks there, and he says, even there was wickedness. So he's at this place now where it's kind of like Solomon's done throughout this letter. He's throwing up his hands. He's saying, I don't think I can find justice in this world. I don't see it. He can't find any justice, um, especially where we would assume to find justice. And we've all been where Solomon is at this point in the book, where we say, life's not fair. And if we haven't said that audibly, we at least have thought that, I'm guessing, about every week I know I Probably something comes up, and at least I think, man, that's not fair. Or I don't deserve that. Or I deserve this. Or they don't deserve that. They deserve this. Or they should get punished. Or whatever it is, I am in the same boat as Solomon when I think of injustice, when I look at my news feed, when I watch the news. It leads us to ask the questions like, why does unexplainable evil happen in the world? This seems to just go unchecked. Why do acts of unrighteousness seem to go unpunished? 
Why do people get away with things that we feel like they shouldn't get away from? You could put the often asked question by skeptics in here. Why do bad things happen to good people under this umbrella? Why does this happen? And maybe more than anything, the question that bothers us, and I think this is where Solomon's going here, is how can we know that the evil that we see in this world will eventually be judged and dealt with? It's like it's one thing that is happening, but then we quickly go to who's going to do something about it? Where's the righteous judge? Where's the one who's going to hold people accountable? And so often, no one gets held accountable. And he goes in verse 17. I said in my heart, so he's reflecting here. He's looking deep down. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. It's interesting that Solomon moves pretty quickly on from kind of his despair in verse 16 And now he seems to be talking or at least having some confidence that God will execute justice at some point, which we'll get into that later. Um, But then Solomon in the second half of verse 17 kind of goes back to an idea he taught about last week at the beginning of this chapter that there's a time and a season for everything. Everything there's a time and a season for. And, And just showing, exercising justice, executing justice is no different. And so he's, he's saying, I think God's going to do this eventually. So let's assume God will execute justice in due time. Let's kind of hold that out here. But for now, it doesn't change the fact that life still seems unfair. It still seems unfair even though we know maybe that God will do this one day, Solomon's saying. But we even look at the scriptures, and the scriptures never promise life being fair. Like That's not a principle that we see in the scriptures, like this idea of fairness in the scriptures. Take Jesus, for example. Like, we often miss the fact that every time we see one of these healings, take in John 5, the book we just finished up, in chapter 5, he's going to the the pool of Bethesda, he's there, and the scriptures say there's a multitude of of kind of lame people hoping that these pools will do something to them, and Jesus singles out one guy, heals him, and the scriptures don't seem to say anything about him healing anybody else there, and it doesn't even say that give a reason for that. Jesus kind of moves on to something else. And we, we think, I'm sure the people sitting around watching this guy get healed are saying, that's not fair. Why isn't this healer, this physician, this miracle worker, why isn't he staying and healing us? Why that guy, not me? And then we have the part where Jesus communicates to the, the rich young ruler that he's often referred to. And he says, hey, go sell all of your possessions, kind of untangle yourself from the possessions and the grip that those have on you to, to become a follower of me, this is what you need to do. And, and you need, if you love me, you'll do this, which is a giant task, right? Selling everything. And that's how he says this guy needs to follow him. But then you got the, the thief that's on the cross who's a proven criminal on the cross. And he says, oh, today you'll with, be with me in paradise. Moment, moments from now, you're going to be with me in heaven. But he told the other guy, you got to do all this stuff first. If you put those two out in front of you, you would say, it's not fair. These are just two small examples. that The Bible never says things are going to be fair. Let's look at verse 18. Why is that then? This is Solomon answering the question. I said in my heart, with regard to the children of man, or just human beings, that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are beasts. So it gives the reason why there's injustice, right? He's testing us. He's, he, he, in his sovereignty and his providence, he's allowing these things to happen to show us who we truly are. And he uses the term beasts here. 
That seems a little bit raw, a little bit primal that he's using that word. And especially when we think theological, aren't we made in the image of God? And that we're actually different than animals. We're like higher, we're, we're higher on that like pedestal than animals are. Yes, that's true. But for this context, the point he's trying to make is that there's a, there's a giant gap between the creator and the creation. And oftentimes as the creations, humans, we want to kind of get up there close to God. And what he's trying to say is God's up here. And we're way down here, and then the beasts, the, the animals are a little bit below us. But everything down here are beasts, and we need to see ourselves as that. This is what got Adam and Eve in trouble in the garden, right? The, the, Satan came along and tempted them, the serpent, and said, wouldn't you like to be God? Wouldn't you like to be a little bit, have a little bit of taste of that and exercise what God does? And they, they bought into that hook, line, and sinker. They're in. Yes, like God, we get, to, we get to be like God. We get to make the calls absolutely And Satan has them, and they eat the fruit, and the rest is history. We are all prone to putting ourselves up there towards the same level as God. And Solomon, God through Solomon, is showing us that he's keeping us humble. Remember, you're beasts. You're the creation, and God is the creator. Now, here's the problem. I think if you don't, if you take God out of the picture that Solomon has done really so far is what do you do if you don't have a relationship with God? What do you do if you believe that there is no God, right? You, you, you have a problem dealing with this idea of justice if that is your take on God, right? If you feel your humanity's, like the humanity's origin story doesn't involve God and that after humanity dies, God's not there, like you just kind of take God out of everything, what do you do about injustice, You have nowhere to turn when you see the injustice of the world. They're going to be hard for you to deal with. And here's why. I believe that God has hardwired us to have this this compass, this kind of meter of injustice. Like when something happens to us and we say that's not fair, like that's hardwired into us. Like we know that things should be done a certain way. That there be some level of, e- of, of equality that people should have in this world. So when we see something, we say, wait a minute, that's not right. So if you take God out of the picture, like what do you do when we face injustice? I think that's a problem if that's your position on who God is. And here's what usually happens. I think humanity usually takes one of two directions in dealing with injustice. Because we can't just let it sit there. Because it bothers us. It bothers when we see innocent people Um, struggling, suffering, 99.9% of human beings are going to feel that at some level. Here are two approaches. One approach is, is we go on about our lives and numb ourselves to the pain. We just numb ourselves. We kind of pretend like it's not there. And this is easier when the injustice is further away from us. We'll get upset for a certain length of time. We'll see a news story. It really bothers us. And then we can go back into our day-in, day-out life and kind of not have to think about it. That is one way of dealing with injustice because we have to kind of um, distract ourselves from it. The other way is that we attempt to, to take on the role of judge and exercise our own justice on what seems unrighteous to us. We lash out. We go after people who deserve to be punished. Right, that, that white, hot anger that I think is a righteous anger that God gives us, and that's not a sin, but once we start to take on the, the role of judge and start exercising justice, that's when things go really, really wrong. One, we're fallible. 
We're not righteous. We're not holy. We, have, we can't see things objectively. It's, it's impossible for us. So when we start to exercise justice, it's probably going to, be, it's probably going to go wrong. We can, we can sweep it under the rug and try to numb ourselves from it, the injustices, or we can attack it in a very unhealthy way, and neither one of these approaches lead to a life of flourishing. It's not going to get us there. So God has to be in the picture. Let's keep reading in verse 19. He kind of explains more of this idea of beasts. What happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. So again, if you don't have a concept of eternity or what's happening before we are born and after we die, this is, this is what's true. The, 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 for what happens to the children of man or humans and what happens to animals or beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. We're dust. We go into the ground. It's over. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts. For all his vanity, there's that his phrase again. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and dust they all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward or the spirit of beast goes down into the earth. So we have no guiding principle to help us deal with the, the injustices of the world if we kind of remove God from the equation. And he's saying when it comes to death, we all end up in the same place as the animals. So what he's trying to do, he's trying to kind of flatten things out for us to show if you approach this topic without God, this is the logical place it ends. This is where you have to end up. Because how are you going to account for all the injustice? How are you going to account for that, that compass in, 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 that's deep inside of you if you, don't have, if you don't bring God into the picture? Then in verse 22 he says, So I saw that there is nothing better then that man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? This is kind of Solomon's refrain. Every time after looking at one of these issues, this is kind of what he falls back on in the book. He says, we can't have all the answers. Life is difficult. It's puzzling in some ways, so at least enjoy your work. And this is, as I read this, I'm a little bit like, come on, Solomon. Like, this feels like a consolation, right? You're so worked up about injustice, and you're kind of like, well, the best we can do is enjoy what God's given us to do. It, to some degree, that is true. But we have something that because we're after, that we're after the cross, we're on this side of the resurrection that Solomon didn't have the vantage point of. We have something that I think can speak into these injustices, which we'll get to here in a second. But the bottom line is, we know that there will be a judgment. We know that there will be, uh, the wickedness will be judged. There will be a judgment when it, the Bible is clear on that. There will be a time of judgment where justice is handed out and mercy is extended. Now, we don't know all the details of what that's going to look like, how that's going to go down. But it's very clear in multiple parts of the scripture, there will be a judgment. Let's look at Ecclesiastes 4, 1 through 3. And I, I include this because I think he's on the same thought process here. And kind of the clue is in verse 1. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. So he takes this umbrella of injustices and he's looking at one aspect, one idea of one, one pathway of injustice. Um, and he says, and behold, or look, the tears of the oppressed. And they have no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors was power and there was no one to comfort them. So again, if, 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 we, if we've missed out on the actual victims here, he wants us to call our attention to the tears, right? It just provokes even more anger when we focus on the tears, the sadness, the brokenness, the pain of victims of injustice. Again, it should drive us more to, to pound the table, to throw up our hands. Where is the justice? This is what Solomon wants to produce in us because he's feeling the same 
thing. Then verse 2 and 3. And I thought that the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. He's got to look, he's thinking back to how he thought in the past. There's some past tense there. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not yet seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. So what, what he is saying is basically like it may have been better to not live or to die early so you don't see some injustice. And he's like, well, better yet, maybe it's better off to never have been born. Like if you've never been born, you wouldn't have to observe this and, and witness these things. Again, he's trying to draw us in to what he's feeling what he's experiencing about injustice, about the pain that he sees all around him. So the question for us sitting here is, what does Solomon want us to do? What does he want us to feel? What does God want us to, to do as a result of, of his word? And I think there are three kind of directions of application. And I want to walk through these. Of What do we do with injustice? We're here. We get it. I think we can all amen Solomon on, yes, there, our world is broken and we just sit back and look at injustice, it is a problem. So what do we do? I think the first thing he wants us to do is to be humble. He wants us to be humble. He wants to show us that we cannot figure this out. Like we can't just come up with a solution. We can't come up with things to help us figure out injustices. We can't figure out the puzzle. And left to ourselves that we've already talked about, we'll botch it. If we take on the role of judge and executor of justice, justice we will botch it. Right? We, will, we will leave somebody out or we'll take our subjective view and apply that to something and leave someone else out because we're not God. We can't see all the angles and all the nuances and all the causes of injustices. Okay? So it should humble us. Like everything in Ecclesiastes, right? Like we're humans, we're beasts, we can't figure this out. The second thing he wants to do is I think he wants to comfort us, to comfort us. Because he, he says it. There in verse 22, and even in verses 17 and 18 there, we know that God is a perfect and holy judge. And he will judge every act of injustice someday. He will make all the wrongs right. He will judge the living and the dead. He will judge every deed, every law that's been broken, everything that's done wrong against his image bearers, he will judge one day. The scriptures are clear on that. We don't often have those verses on coffee mugs, but there will be a time when he judges the living and the dead. Here are just two examples I want to give you of this. Romans 2, 6 through 11. Listen to what Paul says here. He will render to each according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. And those are things that are done through, through faith in Jesus. Verse 8, but those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be a tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, all humans. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Then he fast forward to Revelation 20, 11, and 12. This is kind of that final judgment here that John's giving us a picture of in his vision, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne in him who was seated on it. This is Jesus. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. This is like a, a courtroom scene, in a sense. And books were opened. It's a tool of judgment, right? Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. So, 
If you're a follower of Jesus in this room, these passages should bring great comfort to us. On one end, there will be a judgment. God will have the final say in all matters of wickedness that have occurred ever on the earth. God will have the final say and those things will be judged. Where it's not good news is if you don't have a relationship with God, if you don't know Jesus. This is a serious passage that needs to be wrestled with. You need to wrestle with the fact that what are you going to do if you stand before that judgment seat? What is going to happen? What are you going to appeal to to be judged according to, those, to the list that the Romans, that Paul highlighted in the Romans? The honorable, the, the ones who sought justice, those types of things, right? John Stott says this, and I love this about the gospel. Um, he says, um, actually, I'll wait, on that, I'll wait on that verse. So the gospel this should comfort us, and we should bank on this because of Jesus. Think about the gospel, right? And this is, how Je- this is why Jesus is so attractive and I think so beautiful. So those of you I spoke of a minute ago who don't know Jesus, who maybe don't feel comfortable thinking about standing there uh, before God's judgment seat there. Listen, Jesus, knew, he knew oppression. He knew poverty. He was born in a trough. When he was dedicated at the temple, his parents gave two pigeons which was actually what the poorest people gave. He wasn't born with riches. He wasn't born into wealth. Jesus was virtually homeless throughout his ministry. He has that phrase, boxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He was basically living life of a homeless man for three years. He came into Jerusalem on his last days, not on a war horse, but on a donkey. Not even a donkey, a borrowed donkey. It wasn't even his donkey. He had to borrow the donkey. They took The last thing he had... That, had, that, that was his possession was a robe. They stole the robe from him and put him on the cross. He was tried and killed as a criminal and buried, not in a grave adorned with gold, but in a borrowed grave. Jesus was one who knew poverty. He knew oppression. He was a victim in that way. So not only is he our savior, he can identify with victims. He can identify with those who have been oppressed. He doesn't doesn't just identify with the poor, he identifies with the oppressed. Everybody who's ever sought, suffered injustice, Jesus knows. Every kind, Jesus knows. In the quote by John Stott here, listen to this. I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? Like in this world we live in, with all the injustice, you're going to bank and you're going to put your hopes in a figure, a godlike figure. Take any worldview, world religion, and you're going to bank on this person for your salvation. You're going to want a person who's suffered it all, who's felt it all, who can look people in, 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 in the eyes and say, I get it. I know. I know what it's like to be uh, accused wrongly. I know what it's like to be a victim. I don't know what it's like to be oppressed. I know all of those things. We want to, John Stott, like John Stott, we want to believe in a God. And I think that's why Jesus is even more, makes him even more beautiful. Not only that he died for sinful human beings like you and I, but he knows what we go through. He knows the injustices we go through. And Jesus, who deserved ultimate justice, he is the son of God, forsook that justice, came to our broken world, and suffered the worst of injustices. He was killed on a horrific tool of punishment reserved for the worst. 
He took that upon himself. He, 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 he chose oppression. He did those things. He suffered as a victim so that people like you and I who deserve condemnation can actually be brought back into God's family and seen as righteous and be approved and be welcomed into God's family. We don't deserve that. Jesus deserved that. But he laid that down so that we might be brought in to God's family. This is the, the, the place where God's justice and his love intersect and are most clearly seen is on the cross, period. Like, this is why when God says, I will judge the living and the dead one day, we say, yeah, because we've seen it in Jesus. This is the apex of that judgment. He's laid that upon Jesus. Now, the final judgment has not come yet, but that, 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 uh, that is already moving in that direction because of Jesus. He's the answer to our beastliness, right? The beasts get brought into the family because of Jesus, not because we're better beasts or we're better creations, because of Jesus. Once again, if you come in here and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, I think God, through his word, through the words of Solomon here, wants you to consider this. Consider, who do you put your faith and trust in? And today he's holding up this, this idea of injustice. What do you do with injustice? What do you do with that? I think the only logical conclusion, in my opinion, is looking at the gospel. Because as we see it on the cross, we see it in his word. It's clear. So we've seen that the three things that I think God wants us to do through this text, be humbled, be comforted, right? And lastly, go be people of justice. Go be people of action. Because of the gospel, because of all that love we've received, all that approval that we have in, in, in Christ and before God and his judgment seat, now we can go be the kind of people who are active for matters of injustice and go in those areas. Like you can't be an advocate for someone if you look down upon them. And what the gospel does, it levels the playing field. It shows us that we are no better than anyone else. We are no better than any other human being. The only thing that separates human beings is those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ. And the only reason why we're in Christ is because of Jesus, not because of anything we've done. And that is the most humbling thing, humbling thing we could possibly have. So it flattens the ground here. So now we can go be people that fight against injustice because we don't have to like, have this, well, they're, they're deserving of it, they're not. Or they're, in that, they're not in my tribe and they are. Or they're not deserving of it because we're, we weren't deserving of God's grace and mercy, but we received it. So now we can go hand it out generously. We don't have to walk all over people in our career to get what we want. We don't have to step on other people to get higher. We can have the freedom because we have all the approval, all the justification in Jesus. Now we can freely go love other people with our hands open. It doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter what they agree with us or not. We can, be, we can speak on behalf of the voiceless, the poor, the oppressed, our enemies. Why? Because of the gospel. I couldn't get through um, today's sermon without a quote from Tim Keller. Um, Tim Keller died uh, it was long bat battle with cancer about nine days ago, I think it was. And so I had to get some Keller quotes in here. Um, Keller was uh, for sure the most influential theologian, author, pastor on my life, hands down. And especially in the area of justice. He writes clearly, and I, I love how he speaks of justice. Listen to this. If a person has grasped the meaning of God's grace in his heart, he will do justice. If he doesn't live justly, then he may say with his lips that he is grateful for God's grace, but in his heart he is far from him. 
If he doesn't care about the poor, it reveals that at best he doesn't understand the grace he has experienced. And at worst, he has not really encountered the saving mercy of God. Grace should make you just. So the world motivates through taking care of injustice, through um, this is what's best for you. This is your duty to help your fellow men. That, that's nice for a while, but that doesn't work long term. Because at the heart, we're selfish, and eventually that's going to get tiresome, and we're going to look up, how can I get something out of this? Or what do I need to get back if I'm going to pour my life out for someone else? This is, this is you get shame and guilt for not, for not working on behalf of the poor or working on behalf of the oppression, and that doesn't last. And what Keller's saying, the thing that motivates and plays the long game and work towards seeing healing in these areas is the grace of God found in Jesus Christ. That's the answer to working for, on behalf of injustices in the world. We have to look to the gospel to make us people who are just. I want to go back to the story I started at the beginning. Anita Smith, Ronnie's widow. Uh, Shortly after um, all of this happened, CNN had her on with Anderson Cooper. Big deal, right? She said this. I just envisioned the black Jeep driving up to him, and I don't know their faces. I just want them to know that God loves them and can forgive them for this. This is weeks, like, like days after. Emotion broke in her voice as she spoke. I don't know them. That's how, honestly, that's how I honestly feel. It may sound crazy. It's, it's God's spirit that's putting this inside of me, she added. Smith said she didn't feel any anger or want any revenge against the killers of her husband. I just really want them to know that I do love them and I forgive them. And Ronnie would want this. And I hope and pray that our son, Hosea, would believe this, she said. Yeah, they took away my husband. I love my husband. But it's got to be God's spirit that's pushing me to show them that this is what God wants them to see, she said. Smith also wrote an open letter to the Libyan people. She and her husband traveled to Libya because we saw, quote, we saw the suffering of the Libyan people, but we also saw your hope. And we wanted to partner with you to build a better future in this country, she wrote. To the attacker, she wrote, I love you and I forgive you. Like what, like what, what produces that? Right? What produces a widow weeks after losing her husband, widowing her, leaving her with an 18-month-old son? She said it's the spirit, and, and I agree. And in concert with the gospel, and that she knew, she knew she was saved. She, she didn't have to fight. She, she was resting in the fact, and it's a fact, that one day either those four gunmen would stand before God, like all we would, and they would be judged. And they would either stand before God, and Ronnie's blood that he shed on their behalf, would welcome, God would welcome them into the kingdom, and Ronnie would be worshiping side by side with them around the throne. These terrorists now converted to Christians. That would be one situation, or... They would still be dead in their sins, and God would punish them, and God's wrath would be poured out on them for the injustice they did in this world to Ronnie. So Anita, in that moment, was able to rest in the fact that God's got this. And I pray so much that they find redemption and forgiveness in him, and that Ronnie's blood may be a a, a vehicle for that to happen. That's how she was able to do this. Listen to Romans 12, 19 through 21. Beloved. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. 
he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heat burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Like the burning coals is love, right? It's, it's when someone's expecting a fight in retaliation, you give love. And it's like burning coals to your soul, and you don't know what to do with it. It's disarming, and this is what Anita did. Micah 6 eight says this, he is, and, and this is a popular verse, but I think it fits perfectly with what we're talking about. He has told you, old man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? Like, what are you supposed to do as a follower of Jesus? Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. And Solomon would have said the same thing at the end, probably. Here's another quote from Keller. This is something for us to be aware of, kind of getting really practical. If you have money, power, status today, it is due to the century and place in which you were born. Nothing to take credit there for us. To your talents and capacities and health, none of which you earned. In short, all your resources are in the end the gift of God. So we should be generous with our resources, like we talk about here. Generous with our resources. And use those resources, use maybe the power and privilege we have. We use those things. It's not, we don't have to apologize for having them, but we need to be humble for having them and use them well to, to lift up those who are oppressed, those who are voiceless, those who need help. So we need to look around and identify the injustice all around us. And, and instead of taking a posture that the world would take us that we want to like numb and, and escape and just not think about or lash out with that white hot anger and avenge ourselves, we don't take those two approaches. We, we, we rest in God's final judgment and then we get busy in, in, in loving in areas of injustice and in showing the love that God has shown us in Jesus. This should humble us, this should comfort us, and it should challenge us to do something in the injustices we see around us. Let's pray. God, I, I'm so thankful for this book. I love the, just the, um, the straightforward honestness and the rawness that Solomon um, his, his words here <coughs> that he gives us and that you and your sovereignty and providence have included in the scriptures for us to learn from and that it would change us. And these things we're dealing with are massive, massive issues. These aren't things that can even be um, covered and nuanced in one sermon. So I pray that the text that we've looked at today and the other texts surrounding Ecclesiastes, I pray and we trust that those would, would change us, that your spirit that that, that, um, that brings to life the scriptures would change us. And that even though we're not going to have all the answers, as Solomon has said, we need to be humble and look to the scriptures and how it shows us and how it directs us to live in light of the injustices that as long as we're here on earth, we're going to see. That no amount of human wisdom, no amount of a, a, a political plan, a group of people who are working on behalf of injustice, those things might be... Um, helpful first a time and a place but ultimately it's your mercy and it's your grace and it's people that are resting in your love and your grace that are going to change the world so help us do that help us lead out in those areas as the church and we love you it's in jesus name we pray